Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today, it's Corona Endgame. We've finally fought the battle in Australia. Victoria has rejoined the rest of the country, having battened down the hatches and supposedly nearly eradicated the virus. We can now open up state borders, but not international borders. For how long? When does this vaccine come along? Will it ever come along? That's what we now have to face in Australia as we work out what to do next. We'll also be looking at a couple of elections that you may have heard of. Queensland goes to the polls this weekend, and then a few days later, our cousins across the Pacific in America will also go to the polls. There's some bloke called Trump against some bloke called Biden. You may have heard of them. Uh, we will, of course, be making wild and fantastical predictions about that. But in, ca- in the case of both elections, we'll be asking what is the deeper meaning of the race that we've just had and the result that we might have. Uh, we'll also be talking, as we always do, with our books and culture picks about what we've been reading, watching and listening to. Don't forget, this is a production of the IPA. If you're not already a member, please do join or donate immediately. Pause this program, go join or donate and then resume listening or watching. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Uh, finally remembered to introduce myself for once and I'd like to introduce the other co-host over there on that screen, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Great to have you from RMIT University and uh, welcoming back to the studio for only, uh, it's actually allowed out of the house now, uh, research fellow Andrew Bushnell. Yes, uh, thanks guys, good to be here. It's also good to not have to get like a permit to leave my own home. Mm. Um, that feels like an advance in human freedom. <laughs> yes, you weren't challenged to produce <laughs> I mean, your I'd, papers. I don't, I don't trot out the word progress too often, but uh, not needing not needing papers to leave the front door. Is, that, uh... That's right, and having having to measure five kilometres on a map <laughs> to see what when the elastic starts to, the, the, the five kilometre Oki strap yeah. starts oh, dragging no, well, I've back. Just, I've actually just been wearing a strap Makes it easier. It's wrapped around Elstonwick. Makes it easier. Uh, Yes, um, it has been painful, but uh, that's not what we want to talk about today. We have have emoted from time to time on this podcast, Chris, uh, connected both policy research and and emotion on what it's been like in Victoria. But, uh, of course, the rest of the nation has been watching because there was a, a strategy we had as a nation back in April, May, which was somewhat derailed by a catastrophic failure of government administration in Victoria. But now that uh, numbers are back down to levels sometimes even below those of New South Wales, there is talk that uh, we can be a nation once again. Where does that nation go after that, Chris? That is, that is the big question. And Scott, as you know, I've been complaining through this entire crisis that we are apparently incapable of thinking more than one step ahead. So now that we're out of um, lockdown, and we apologise to our listeners in states that aren't Victoria, um, but it is very hard to think of anything else other than the fact that you are locked in your house. Um, But now that we're out of lockdown, I think it's worth talking a little bit about the um, what, what is next. How do we get out of this situation? Um, It's obvious now that the um, strategy from the Victorian government, in fact, Brett Sutton, the chief health officer, has said this explicitly now, thank goodness he got around to saying it, is that um, they had to get to zero or they had to get to near zero because otherwise they would not be able to open the border with New South Wales and Queensland and the rest of the country. Now, I, I can understand that rationale. I think, you know, that, that creates a lot of problems. 
and we've suffered through it. But I can understand the argument there. But what I want to hear from the federal government now is how are we going to open to the rest of the world? The situation that we find ourselves in, if this lockdown has been successful, and if we are functionally at zero, if not zero, is that there is a group of, a small number of countries in this world that have functionally eliminated the virus. And then there's the vast majority of the world who haven't. How are we going to interact with the world that hasn't done so? Andrew, with that incredibly open question, I'd ask you to sort of reflect on where you think we go from here. When it has been a remarkable success, at least on the getting rid of the virus. Yeah. We have a devastated economy and we're all we're all going to be very poor for a long time. But, you know, remarkable success in that sense. Well, I think the, the, what next? Yeah, the economic pain is going to continue because it seems to me that the the strategy um, is that having gotten basically almost come close to eliminating it within Australia, um, the goal seems to be to to ride out the next year, basically, um, in some sort of quasi autarky um, until a vaccine is rolled out around the world. So um, I, I saw um, Anthony Fauci, was, uh, who's the, been the top advisor to Trump in the United States, he was giving um, a talk at, uh, via Zoom at uh, uni- the University of Melbourne this week, and he was saying, you know, that it's going to be the end of 2021 at the earliest before things are normal, before, like, or come close to being normal before a vaccine gets rolled out, that a vaccine will actually only probably suppress the symptoms that people get. It won't stop them from contracting the infection in the first place, things like this. And it seems to me that um, the reason we're not hearing a lot from the Commonwealth about this is because tacitly, at least, the idea is we'll just wait, like the next 12 months is really going to be quite painful, but it will keep it low domestically. We're going to, I mean, one thing they've got to do is they've got to ramp up their efforts to get Australians home, um, which is sort of an under the radar disgrace. Um, And then um, hopefully by the end of next year, the economic pain will start to be alleviated by the rollout of a vaccine. Yeah. uh, But but it's a huge, sorry, just on that, on that rollout of a vaccine, it becomes a huge problem doesn't because there's no world in which the vaccine is 100% effective as you say you know some vaccines may only target the symptoms and there's no world in which 100% of people take the vaccine and not not because we're too cowardly to make it mandatory or something like that it's just you can't give vaccine to some people who are immunocompromised and and so forth so we're just not going to get 100% coverage we're not going to eliminate the vaccine so in those countries that get the vaccine that need it much more than we do Um, If we're ever to open our borders to the rest of the world again, to do so, we'll be letting the virus back in regardless. There will have to come a time when Scott Morrison or a future prime minister or future immigration minister says it's okay if COVID comes into Australia in significant numbers. Otherwise, we never never open to the world. There's, there's, There's no... Um, it's very, very unlikely that this virus is just going to be eliminated from from the viral pool. Um, we, there's, it's very unlikely that a vaccine will eliminate the virus itself. So, when do we let COVID back in? Well, I, th- I think the cost, you know, it, the cost of people coming in 
will go up and stay up. I mean, Australia is already a relatively costly country to come to, um, not just because of distance, but because of you know, quarantine requirements and things make it harder to ship things into Australia. And, um, this is just probably going to be, for a long time, another layer of, of that. I, I, I think the answer to your question is practically... Um, in the way you framed it, when can we? When will we? Be, when will we be feel safe enough to let people come in um, in large numbers where they may have this? I think the answer to that is probably never. Um, I, I, and, and or at least not for not until this current generation of. I mean, this is the politics of it. This current generation of politicians has to be out of the way before there'll be any change because they will never, ever admit that they overreacted at all. So there's that level of it too, but I, I think, um, you know, realistically we're looking at um, this being part of quarantine protocol for a while, I would, I yeah. would think. Yeah, I think there's um, – uh, thinking about the barriers to entry into Australia is, is useful because I think uh, there's a meta point here, and I have been thinking about this, Chris. I mean, this is a podcast, well, so good. I have been thinking <laughs> yeah. about this. Um, you think about this in between each episode of the podcast. That's, that's, that's right. Um, uh, <laughs> when I think about – what we look like in 2021, maybe even 2022, it's almost like we've come full circle back to the old structure of the Australian economy. It's not quite autarky, Andrew, <laughs> because um, uh, it's more mechanicalist actually because we, we still focus on exports. Um, but, you know, from, from, say, Keating onwards, talking about the opening up of the economy, the idea was we would transition from an economy which was just an exporter of primary products. In those days, it was mainly agricultural with, you know, mining was on the way up. Um, and it was like, we need to become um, a part of a services economy. Um, and so a year ago, we used to say, well, um, uh, there's uh, uh, higher education, like people like um, Chris, uh, getting in all these wonderful international students in unbelievable numbers. Um, uh, international tourism, thanks to Paul Hogan and Lara Bingle, whatever. Um, and these were seen as challenging the staples um, of uh, iron ore and coal. And um, people like me used to say, well, yeah, but iron ore and coal, there's a lot more of it and they pay more in royalties. And anyway, but anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs> there was at least a spread of the things that would earn us foreign exchange and benefit the economy and there were jobs in the cities uh, not just um, out in uh, the back blocks of Queensland and WA. And this was a reasonably balanced economy. I feel like, uh, of course, uh, we've closed the doors to international students. I know South Australia is trying to gently bring some back in, but, you know, it's, it's very hard to see us getting back to any of anything like the numbers that we saw anytime soon. Uh, similarly, tourism. I mean, uh, uh, Scott Morrison, bless him, is saying that he spoke to Shinzo Abe about... Um, the Japanese opening up you know, a bubble with Japan. I can't see floods of Japanese suddenly wanting to leave, you know, into a COVID world. And as you say, it's a very expensive uh, possibility for them to come to Australia. No, but anyway. I, I would definitely go to Japan. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Traffic the other way, on the other hand. Um, it'd be nice to know you could come back, um, actually go to a country where everything runs properly. Um, including COVID management. But by the by, so it's like, you know, uh, 60 years after Jeffrey Blaney wrote The Tyranny of Distance, we're back to that kind of an economy again because you can't have um, uh, engagement with the Asia-Pacific and the services and all these kinds of things in a world where the borders are closed. Now, I did notice in the um, reporting on the budget that uh, the government, part of its 
projection um, for what the budget will look like down the track. By 2023-24, if I recall, um, they're predicting that permanent migration will be back above 200,000 annually. That seems somewhat optimistic given that this year I think it's going to be negative. Negative 70, I think. Yeah, so... um, But they're certainly... Certainly at the top level, the planning is that um, we will go back to the kind of economy that we had um, within, you know, that's a relatively short time frame. That's three years, four years. Um, I, I would be a little bit more negative on that. I mean, it just in the, it, as a prediction, because it seems to me that um, if, you, if you have spent the better part of a year terrifying people, you can't just turn really quickly to saying it's all safe now. Don't worry about it. Um, people are going to worry about it for a long time, and that means that is that, you know. that is to your point. That is what is going to happen, right? That, uh, now they're not going to say, "Oh, it's fine now. Don't worry." COVID, <laughs> COVID was never much much of a thing. But th- there is going to be a moment, and um, hopefully, it'll be a moment when the virus is much less harmful. I mean, we know that it's been. We're treating it much better. There'll, there's lots of therapeutics. Um, uh, it, it, it may even get less virulent, which is what has happened in previous pandemics. Um, but there will come a moment when they say, "Like, well, no, nah, that's that's fine." Yeah, that's it. Um, you can't because, afford it because we can't we can't abandon. Now, obviously, we've had lots of debates about international students on this podcast, but putting that aside, we're not going to abandon tourism. But the tourism industry in Australia is not just going, "Eh, well, get rid of that one." Um, uh, we are talking about Australia's biggest industries. We are not going to completely separate ourselves from the world. We cannot um, We cannot have the export economy that we want, even in things like coal and iron ore, without also having human travel to make those business deals. You cannot do major iron ore deals over Zoom, and we will have to have a world in which we have human migration outside or we could just no, have privileges the for the elite no, class. Actually, actually, I disagree with that, Chris. I disagree with that. When I was talking about the, the return to an older economy, um, I, I actually think this has been the fascinating thing about Australia when Keating said we need to open up to the rest of the world. Australia's always been a trading country. Uh, I mean, it was founded as a little bit of a communist um, colony, um, uh, as William Coleman has pointed out. Apart from its out. short period of military dictatorship. Yeah, apart from its short period of uh, military dictatorship, eventually they worked out that trade and free settlers were necessary, and we've done rather well since then, thank you very much. Um, but, uh, of course, we have always traded with the rest of the world, but something like iron ore, actually you can run on, over Zoom. I mean, you know... Um, uh, the big miners led the charge to create a, a you know a spot market in, in iron ore. Um, uh, North Asia uh, didn't know what they were up to, but um, very very few people are actually required to interact with that. Uh, we've seen uh, as China is pulling up uh, it, its its borders or build, erecting its borders again, um, that you know expats are moving out of China. They're localizing stuff. So I actually think our bulk exports we can do it. And that's why you, you always bet on Australia. Like, we're never going to be completely stuffed. Um, you know, God bless iron ore, God bless coal. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, services, everything else, you can't, you can't do without people. And, um, uh, and now I've forgotten the other thing I was going to say. No, no, but uh, I'm I'm sure look, I, I think that's important. But when <laughs> Keating was talking about opening up to the world, he was talking about 
regulatory changes to allow foreign banks, for example, or, um, or tariff productions. Um, he's not talking about, this is, again, this is what makes this such a weird crisis in that there's some things that we can perfectly well do. Um, it's not like a regulatory system where you can't have foreign companies operating in Australia, but we're not allowed outside our house, or at least we weren't until last week. Um, we're not allowed to go overseas. We, we put a two week tax on any travel overseas um, that we have to be quarantined. It's just um, those, these completely randomly positioned artificial barriers that I don't think we've got a really good read on how they affect the day-to-day um, uh, international trade, day-to-day I, I, international I remembered commerce. what I was going to say. And it's, oh, good, good. It's, a, it's a good point, Chris. I think it's a good point. And it riffs on Andrew talking about this uh, confidence. Uh, I mean, when you talk to businessmen, um, admittedly, uh, mainly those in Victoria, um, we get down to um, investment. Now, remember that the same Treasury that's saying we're back to normal by uh, 22, 23, were the same ones who said that at the end of the mining boom, uh, don't worry about uh, mining investment coming off because that will then enable a corresponding rise in non-mining investment. And as Daniel Wild, Director of Research at the IPA, pointed out, that did not happen. You know, um, uh, investment as a percentage of GDP went below 10% against Treasury forecasts and has been stubbornly low. So the, the point is, in this scenario, why would anyone invest? Why would anyone put sunk capital into a factory or any kind of enterprise in, in Melbourne, certainly, but this somewhat applies to other, other states, why would you invest that money fully in the knowledge that if some kind of so-called second wave or third wave comes along, it's going to be shut down? Like, no. you know, invest... Well, it's only you know, th- th- it's only ever... We need, you know, one, two, three-year uh, lead times. Why would no, you do look, it? Look, look I, I agree with you in the general, but it is only ever comparative. And we, we shouldn't ignore, um, although we should with caveats, uh, consider with caveats, the fact that other countries are going into lockdown at the moment. Now, nowhere near as heavy lockdown as us. So I was looking through some of the lockdowns in Europe. Um, Germany's going into lockdown. They kept the borders open, which doesn't seem like the sort of lockdown that we've been talking about. Um, uh, But nonetheless, um, I think when we assess the, um, the, the political sensibilities of this era, I think we're going to see more consistency across the world rather than rather yeah. than peculiarities. Well, th- those countries, though, that are, are now going into lockdown or talking about it, um, particularly in Europe where they were basically patting themselves on the back for how well they're done and now it's, <laughs> um, it's quite bad. Um, they, they haven't, in, in a sense, they haven't spent their lockdown money, whereas we already have. Our governments need to immediately rule out for exactly the reasons that Scott just mentioned, need to rule out the prospect of further lockdowns. We've spent our lockdown budget. Um, Every country, no matter how rich, and there's only so much time that they can pursue these policies of of stopping trade and the the economy actually moving and growing. Um, And some countries, you can see there, because there are countries that pursued similarly aggressive policies to what we had um, that hit the wall earlier because they're not as wealthy. uh, and I'm thinking here of um, my wife's home country, Peru, had um, a really very strict um, lockdown policy very early um, for which the president was was heavily praised. But Peru is, uh, um, you know, in the second band of, you know, developing countries and, and they hit the wall early because in particular... 
the people mm. in the poorer parts of the cities, they just had to go back to work. Yeah. They had the choice between protective measures against COVID and starvation. And of course, you know... Not much they, of a choice there, really. Yeah or, yeah. Or, yeah, or avoiding starvation. And they chose to avoid starvation. They decided mm. to go back to work. And frankly, that's kind of the point that we're hitting in Australia. Um, this yeah. idea of keeping everyone on the government payroll indefinitely, just yep. even for a country as rich as ours... We're rich because we work and it's time. Every country will hit a wall where you have to go back to work. Now, Germany is an extremely rich country and they've avoided some of the worst costs, and I, financial and I, effects I, so I, far. I bet you they didn't stop making Mercedes-Benz and BMWs during... Yes, exactly. So they might be able to expend some lockdown budget now and there might be mm. lockdowns in different parts of the, of the world, particularly the rich parts of the world, ongoing over the next 12 months. That's not to say that Australia can ever pursue this path again. Um, I, I, we are going to hit a trillion dollars in net government debt. And you would like to think, I, this, when I heard that number, what I thought was, when I heard that number, I thought- That seems high. <laughs> I thought, I thought that's, a, that's a big number. But I also thought, geez, what did you buy for a trillion dollars? You know, when you, when you really think about it, you'd like to think that you'd get some sort of glorious- thing at the end of a trillion dollars a nuclear spending. arsenal like or a, something a, useful yeah like we a fast just, rail or something yeah just like anything we spent a tr we've spent a trillion dollars all up not just on covid but all up australia's kept spending a trillion dollars just keeping the lights on now that's not you know and keeping the lights on and by keeping the lights on i mean keeping the lights on for well-fed um bureaucrats basically this country's mm. you know knowledge economy is a bureaucrat economy which add more and more bureaucrats the answer to chris's question about what are we going to do when the university sector is dead and the tourism sector is dead is we're just going to convert everyone into bureaucrats um and hope that the money never runs out well frankly it will that, that'd be my takeaway well um i know a jurisdiction that's ahead of the game on that on that uh that strategy there chris one which uh, de definitely relied on a bureaucrat-led uh, uh, debt-funded debt uh, recovery, and that, of course, is Queensland. Would you like me to dwell on that segue, or should we just, yeah. just go straight? Yeah, let's, let's run. We'll just, we'll just pause to appreciate it for a moment and then, <laughs> then move on. <laughs> All right. So um, as Scott um, ably um, argued then, uh, so Queensland is obviously about to go to its state elections. The election will be held on Saturday, which is the 31st of October, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk up against Deb Breckington. Um, I'm going to read a quote from a piece that Judith Sloan um, wrote, I think, in The Australian this morning. And, Andrew, I might ask you to respond to it because it really goes to, to this point. Um, there was a time when a government's poor financial management carried a heavy political price. Reckless financial management was a death knell. But judged by the experience of Queensland, voters today seem immune to stories of wasteful government spending, rapid growth of public sector employment, escalating government debt and downgrading of the state's credit rating. Andrew, why is this? Why does it look like voters in Queensland or anywhere else on the planet don't seem to care about that basic yeah, it, management? It definitely issue. seems like even halfway competent government or even completely incompetent government like we've had in Victoria, people aren't punishing um, politicians for it. Um, and COVID has kind of become an all-purpose excuse for things that were already bad before coronavirus and would have been bad in its absence. Um, you know, the, it's not just in Queensland. I mean, across the country, there, there are a number of 
on a number of sort of social and economic markets, the country wasn't doing particularly well anyway. Um, and that kind of all has all been forgotten in the wake of, of COVID. It, it's it's um, for the political class, it's actually been um, the perfect crisis. They haven't even had to manage it well to get credit for it. Um, and it's erased all of the bad things that they did in the past. And that's the only thing that I can really, you know, when, when you look at Queensland and, and you think about Queensland as basically, um, you know, a high growth, really prosperous part of Australia, um, and then you look at, um, in that Judah Sloan piece, and you, you look at basically what the, this Labor government, um, well, the consecutive Labor government's broken up by um, the missed opportunity of the, the Campbell Newman LNP government. Um, have done to the state's finances, and you'd think, you'd think it would matter, but and, and I still have a suspicion that it would have mattered, but for coronavirus. But coronavirus like throws a veil over all of the bad things that had happened before, and elections that take place in this context are basically being judged. Um, well, I mean, certainly, I mean, this is at least one view of it. It seems like they might be being judged simply on. Um, coronavirus and Queensland, um, you know, has done reasonably well. They weren't that badly hit. They closed the border. They took a, this, you know, this tough stance, which is always going to play well um, in Queensland. And they managed to get the bread and circuses aspect, as Judith Sloan points out in that piece. I mean, they managed to save the AFL season. Um, you had the AFL at the, during the grand final. You had all of the people from the AFL thanking the the Queensland government. It was you know the only person who said the right thing was Damien Hardwick said thank you to the state of Queensland, as in thank you to the people of Queensland who made this possible, not thank you to you know the Labor government. But anyway, that's but <laughs> the I think Labor that, campaign. I think that's the point. I think yeah. COVID has kind of thrown this veil over all the bad things. But no, yeah. but, but but Andrew, that's not that's that's not surprising. That that makes complete sense because if you're in Queensland, um, and this is not my view, but if you're in Queensland and you're thinking, um, well, you know, at least at least we're not like what it is in Victoria or the United States or Europe or something like that. And voters do rank issues depending on the, the things that are the priorities of the time. That's not that's not weird. I think it's unfortunate, but it's not weird. Yeah, it's yeah. certainly so I mean certainly it's this is the most salient issue, but you would you would think you it's it's a little bit different in the sense that it seems like people themselves haven't carried over their lingering suspicions. Although that said, I think this government from memory has never really polled all that badly. And the polling yeah. is kind of um, level. Like it's a statistical tie yeah. at the moment. So it could go yeah. the other way. So so if we make some predictions that they'll be basically wild predictions. Um, uh, but uh, one of the benefits of fixed term elections, Chris, is that I had time as editor of the IPA re review to <laughs> commission a piece on the election. And of course, um, IPA members will have read this article, Still the Sunshine State, um, Australia Post permitting. It's also on our website and we'll link to it uh, with um, Marcus Smith and Dan Petrie wrote a great um, uh, preview of the election, looked at both parties and, and the record. So, um, uh, you know, talking about debt, a bloated public service, you know, tracking the rise in debt and the rise in public service numbers. I, I think I differ a little bit, Andrew. I, I, I like to think that in the absence of COVID, there would have been some focus on $100 billion of debt and what the hell are all these public servants doing? I'm not sure that's the case. Um, I, uh, you know, part of it is uh, some pixie dust spread by... Um, I was about to say Keynesian economists, but you know, with the, apart from Judah Sloan, they're all Keynesians nowadays. They they talk about the you know, oh, well, debt interest rates are low. It, it funds investment, and they they provide this cover 
for this rise in debt. But as you said, Andrew, in the national context, and it's true at the state context, what do they have to show for it? Same thing's happening in Victoria. What do they have to show for it? To the extent that the, any of it's gone towards actual physical infrastructure, which might have an economic benefit in the future, it always costs twice as much as it should have. It was always bad solutions, um, you know, politically driven options. And mainly it's just going into public sector payrolls. Yes. Well, you know what? That's what they have bought. They've bought the myth of the knowledge economy, yep. which is a thing to sell people, um, which is actually the transition has actually been to a service economy, as we know, we get talk that talks we talk about that sometimes, but we also hear this thing about the knowledge economy. But the knowledge economy, most of those jobs that you that go to this, you know, we've increased the number of university graduates we have and we've changed the career path for a lot of people in the middle class, um, to funnel them into these supposedly knowledge economy jobs. Most of them are in the, the bureaucracy, the actual bureaucracy that gets paid for by taxpayers, and then there's this other layer of the private bureaucracy where all they do is administer regulations within big firms. Mm. Um, and that, that, those jobs exist only because the government this, insists that those jobs are done. This is what Joel, Joel Cotkin called it, the clerisy. The clerisy, um, which is borrowing but, word from uh, Coleridge, of all people. But, but, but to, go back, to go back to the Queensland election, I think it's interesting that um, oh, uh, Labor is the there. beneficiary <laughs> of the um, the change that we've identified, which is the sudden prominence and preeminence of the premiers against um, uh, the Commonwealth government in in this particular moment. Because just uh, I was looking before we were talking, you know, so I've got some idea of the Queensland election situation. We're just hopping on the ABC website. So where did the LNP and Labor stand on key election issues? And the key election issues that the ABC has identified for Queensland outside coronavirus and obviously not including debt because the ABC doesn't care about that. Um, child safety workers, digital divide among students. So um, uh, how many students have laptops? Uh, domestic and family violence, elective sur surgery waiting lists. All of these are important problems, but they're not exactly front page stories and they're not um, the sort of things that really swing elections. Well, that's now, the I think that we should be... I think we should be spending more time, I think the Queensland voters should be spending more time thinking about the basic financial management of the government. But again, it's not surprising in this period where suddenly the premiers have taken the preeminent political role in Australia, that yeah, I coronavirus, mean, the, the, this is that, the, that they could win an election just the, by saying, look, we'll keep the water the, This is the test, isn't it, Chris? Because this really is the first, you know, post-corona election in Australia, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes, it is, if you um, only include places... That are productive. <laughs> ah, yes, I, ACT. I'm not counting. <laughs> Spe speaking of the clarity, but, but that was the that was the pivot that I wanted to to go to was that um, you know th those kind of uh, preoccupations of the ABC reading class, ABC watching class, are um, basically a product of the increasing centralisation of politics in Queensland, in Brisbane, and its surrounds. Um, and this is a, in part a, a function of uh, Queensland being unique among Australian states in having a unicameral um, parliament that does not have um, an upper house that, you know, sort of check, you know, refracts the, the popular will through a different mechanism, different sorting mechanism. Um, and I just wanted to, to raise it because um, the IPA, um, some colleagues of mine put out a, a very good paper uh, this week about... Um, 
basically re-picking one of the oldest fights in Australian politics um, about... Well, was it 1925? So it was 100, 100 years ago, uh, the Labor-controlled upper house of Queensland uniquely in the history of Western democracy voted to abolish itself. Um, and this was in line with um, a, a long-standing uh, ideological principle of the, the Australian Labor Party, which was to abolish upper houses um, uh, that, and to abolish federalism as well. The, 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 the belief of the, of the Labor Party traditionally was that um, having a, a, a single house um, for the whole country would be the best way of, of representing the will of the people um, and that they believed that upper houses... Uh, and this is not entirely untrue or entirely unfounded that upper houses were kind of a, a just a way for uh, sort of a privileged class to to slow progress that you would get from a you know a strong willed national government. And, and anyway, and, and the problem with that being exactly yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so this is this is one of the one of the, the this is why what makes this this paper um, that we've put out uh, written by Morgan Big and Daniel Wild about restoring the upper house in Queensland so great is that it it. it um, it's one of these. It's a really old fight, and it's a it, it's a it's an old fight in Australia, and it's a really old fight uh, in democracy about um, you know ways of restraining um, sort of the excesses of majoritarian government. Uh, and that paper basically it presents three different models, but it very boldly presents a model that would heavily weight the upper house in favour of the regions of Queensland, and that might be one way of. Um, increasing the salience of things that uh, affect more than the, the, the bureaucrat class um, that primarily resides in Brisbane. And so Queensland in this way is a, is a really interesting example of a broader dynamic in Australia, the distorting effect um, that the, the bureaucratisation, if I can, if that, that's a word. word, that's a word, yeah. um, it's a hard word to say. But, um, the bureaucratisation of the economy is affecting our democracy. Uh, and so that's another element in this that I think, you know, that bureaucrat class has overseen the COVID response mm. and they're not about to condemn themselves, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, so as I see it, I, as I see it the, uh, like I think that uh, Queensland should have an upper house and I think it's insane that they don't and an upper house traditionally is, is based on... Um, geography, uh, geographic regions and so forth. But I don't see that as the primary thing. If I was to reform the Queensland um, uh, political system, it wouldn't be to overweight geographical areas rather than, uh, as opposed to the um, uh, po pure population measures. I would be thinking about doing those sorts of things like splitting it up because I'm, I'm, I don't want to overweight certain factors, certain classes of people, certain regions. I want people whose decisions, people to make decisions that affect them. I care much more about subsidiarity and having more control, devolving things down rather than overweighting. And we sort of see this in the US as well with the perennial debate about the electoral college. And the conversation is always, well, if, if, you know, if we didn't have an electoral college or if we didn't have a similar system, then some regions would have more influence than other regions or, or or we'd lose some balance there. I'm much more interested in making sure that individuals in individual communities have control over themselves. But, but you, you had a radical idea. For, you had a radical idea for Queensland too, though, didn't you, Chris? Uh, you don't know. So, so, I mean, it's not that radical, right? So um, uh, I, I've, I've long been the supporter of multiple states in or splitting states up. I think there's a really obvious 
split that you could do in Queensland between um, northern and southern Queensland. There are other models. Um, I've I've been writing for the better part of 10 years in support of Bob Gatter's plans to split the state up. Um, uh, in general, I'm for more states and I'm for more jurisdictions um, entirely because you want the people whose decisions to make the decisions that affect them the most. I think, Scott, you mentioned um, William Coleman's book that mm. he edited, uh, the compilation of essays. It's called Only in Australia. It's a great book. I've been reading it uh, recently, in fact. Um, and in that in that book, one of his essays, I, I think it's one of his essays, makes the point that that uh, argument that Chris has just made has has generally fallen on deaf ears in Australia. Um, and it's, I'm sympathetic to Chris's point, so I was very interested to, when I was reading this, but it's kind of that small uh, Republican idea of uh, an activist citizenry, um, you know, participating in the creation of rules that, that reflect its will in some sense. It's never really gotten a lot of traction in Australia in, in, and, in fact, has generally been displaced by um, the faith that Australians place in expert-created rules. Um, and there's a kind of a conflict there, and, and this, so and that second idea, this expert created um, system of rules that we we tend to have, is a kind of a centralising system uh, inherently, inherently um, because yeah. because of um, you know the uniformity it flo- of flows, rules. flows from our utilitarianism. Yeah. There is one other point I wanted to make about um, uh, Queensland, um, which doesn't segue at all. Sorry, I'm not riffing on what you just said, Andrew. It was a very good point. Um, but another article in the IPA review was written by Bradley Bowden, uh, who's been a pro- professor uh, in labour history at Griffith University. And um, one of the things that uh, Bradley's been tracking, of course, is the change in the nature of the, the union movement over time. Now, the ALP is a creature of the union movement. So what is happening in uh, the union movement is important for what it means for the ALP. And, of course, um, the thing that he writes about here in the IPA review, based on an earlier journal article, and it's peer-reviewed, so it must be true, um, <laughs> was the uh, essentially the decline in unionism has, has really been a decline in uh, the... Um, unionism in the productive sectors of the economy as uh, things like uh, the proportion of agricultural workers shrank, as the proportion of manufacturing workers shrank, as we went to a knowledge economy. And, uh, you know, the the AWU used to run the ALP in Queensland when, you know, there was all these shearers. Um, And uh, that's not the case anymore. So it's a knowledge economy, quote marks for listeners on podcasts, uh, as you say, Andrew. So what does that mean for the ALP? It means that the unions are the public sector unions. So the the soul of unionism, the soul of the labour movement and the real power behind ALP governments is are the public sector unions. Yeah. So what do you do when you get into government? When right. you, in Victoria, you give them a 2% pay rise in the middle of a pandemic and and the, their wage rolls explode. Yeah. And there's another element to that too, which is that public sector unions are more ideological, right? Because the people who are members of them are members of them for ideological reasons. They don't actually need collective bargaining. They're going to get a good deal hmm. anyway. And in fact, they're arguing with, um, they're arguing with an employer that whose pockets are basically uh, mm. unlimited. Yep. So... They don't actually need this from the, in the material and, and, sense. And, and you can threaten their pre-selections if yeah. they don't give you that pay rise. Well, exactly. You all, you all are already possessed of a vote. Um, 
Whereas collective bargaining traditionally, uh, or unionism, was a material movement. It was, mm. we need to do this to advance our material well-being because otherwise you won't pay us what we think we're worth. Um, and, and so it's not just that the, the, it's not just that the, it's not just that the, um, uh, the union movement is populated by a different class of people. It's populated by a class of people with different reasons for being in the movement in the first place. They're interested in it for political reasons first and material reasons only subsidiarily. Subsidiarily, you know, secondarily. And <laughs> I'll just switch my word choice. But you, I mean, you take my point is that they're. Mm. they're um, it's not just that they're different people, their motivations are different. And this feeds through into everything that the Labor Party does um, and everything that we think of about unions. Indeed. Um, thank you, Andrew. Uh, a couple of uh, very meaty points there. Um, there is another election going on, which you may have heard of, uh, in the United States. Uh, we probably won't spend quite as long on it. Uh, we have talked about it a lot, and I'm pleased to, to say to our uh, listeners that we will be here next next Thursday and we'll actually be able to have a little panel uh, on the wash-up of, of the result, uh, if there is one. <laughs> as, we, as we plan out the Supreme Court challenge. Yes, that's right. As, uh, as Pennsylvania is mired in uh, allegations of, of voter fraud and, um, and Trump refuses to leave the White House, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, uh, tanks roll down the White House lawn. Um, <laughs> that's right. So, Scott... As you, as you point out, that there will be a, um, uh, a presidential election. Um, why don't I throw to Andrew? Andrew, we'll move quickly to um, predictions, but why don't you give us just your high-level summary about how you think the campaign is going, maybe well, maybe for Trump but also Biden? Well, the, the, the takeaway from the campaign is that either this will prove that campaigning matters or it will prove that it doesn't, at least in certain circumstances, because very clearly... Trump is the better campaigner. He's campaigning. He's well, for one, he's actually campaigning. He's doing any campaigning. At so, all. Yes. Um, so Trump is on this this huge barnstorming tour of the battleground states. You know, three rallies a day, huge crowds. Voter intensity for Trump could not be higher. Democracy does not come down to voter intensity, even in states where, even in countries where you have to have um, voter turnout. You know, you have to turn out your voters. And so intensity matters, but there's like a, it's a threshold. Um, and as long as Biden's voters are motivated enough to vote, then it doesn't, it might not matter that he is literally not campaigning at all. Um, he's, you know, Trump keeps hitting him for being locked in his basement. Um, but all, all, all in all, that might be sensible um, because people, the, the, the calculus might be that people have made up their mind at this point and Trump's betting that they haven't. So, uh, as to the campaign, I mean, Trump has clearly won the campaign. Um, will it be enough? Uh, well, we'll get to the predictions yeah. shortly. Well, they probably, they probably both campaigned. Uh, their campaigning both follows their strategy. I mean, the, the Biden strategy was to just let Trump campaign against himself, you know, yeah. to make yeah. it a referendum yeah. on and Trump. And the best way of doing that is actually just let Trump be Trump. Uh, and so... And if, and, and if that works, and if that works... So, I mean, we'll find out next week. But if that works, then you can't not conclude that Biden hasn't had Trump's measure basically from day one. Don't do anything. Just let Trump talk. Just let him talk. Be perfectly adequate. 
or not even perfectly adequate, be over the threshold. Well, be a name. Be an, I mean, realistically, it's be a name on a bit of paper. Yeah. I mean, Joe, Bi- Joe, yeah. Bi- Joe Biden could be a witch's hat. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, don't 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 be uh, don't be um, Bernie Sanders. Don't don't make yourself the issue. No. Don't don't be ideological. Don't do anything. No, but that's, and I actually but, think but I actually a, think the that's people a strategy, who are, right? So yeah, that's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah. Come up, you, you come up with that strategy. So what's well, the strategy? Uh, whether it's Biden's strategy or whether it's his advisor's. But strategy. like all strat, like all, if it works, it's brilliant. All strategies, you know, take place on the terrain of the battlefield, and you got to work with what you've got. And Joe Joe Biden actually couldn't run a different strategy. And frankly, um, I don't necessarily like to cast dispersions on people's vote choices, but if you're prepared to vote for a guy who basically can't leave home and is basically senile, senile, um, then I think you should reconsider whether you love your country or not. I just think that that is a, a horrible proposition. Um, the way they've gone about this. Now, Trump has, of course, created the opportunity by being himself, um, but also, you know, he's, it's, it's, his style creates mm. this because he's going to crowd out a lot of the media anyway. Um, he's going to... The focus tends to come onto him anyway. So in part, you know, this is a, a strategy you couldn't run against, you know, an, another an, candidate. A normal candidate. I mean, the, uh, other, the, other, the other interesting thing about them following the strategy that they set a long time ago is that after we've actually come back to the point as we approach election day when the strategic assessments are actually right. Um, the broad strategic assessments are, of course, Republicans will never win, you know, the, the, the Californias or the New Yorks, um, and the Democrats have to be honest and say you're never going to win um, Texas and Florida. And, and Florida, I think, is a lock for the, for the GOP. So uh, the Democrats didn't get too diverted. Um, the um, and all this stuff about um, uh, the Hispanics won't vote for Republicans. Well, that's that's just BS. Uh, they certainly will in Florida. Uh, they've only got to look at Venezuela. But the point is, so the original strategic assessment is it's about the battleground states. It's it's about the Midwest. Um, Biden plays well in the Midwest, therefore it must be Biden. That was that was the sole strategic assessment of Democrats. Yeah. Now three months ago, Trump was toast. I think. Um, uh, but he's fought his way back. Um, the incredible Trumpian flourish of getting coronavirus, which uh, who else would have come up with that strategy? Um, uh, and and he's narrowed that gap. And, and now we're back to saying, you know, state by state, you know, he'll probably get up so, in Michigan, so but will he, will he get he... up in Wisconsin? Uh, Arizona's probably so, Democrat. Uh, you know, so who knows, just... you know? Scott, I'm going to hold you to this. So, so let's do predictions, and then I'll ask you why you think he's narrowed the gap. Ah, well, I think even even the even the polls uh, say that he's narrowed the gap, and I think you know there was a time there when he could have lost Florida, and that that was just the end of it. You know, then then no further correspondence will be entered into. But uh, I think he'll win. He'll win Florida, uh, and we're back to you know the states which have you know the 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 ten, twelve, fifteen, eighteen electoral college votes. Uh, that get him over the line. He'll never, uh, he'll never have a, a thumping majority in the electoral college. But he doesn't need money. He only just needs to scrape over the line. Um, uh, so percentage percentage chances that Donald Trump is president next year? I'd say forty percent. Forty percent. Because the Democrats will yeah. cheat in Pennsylvania. Andrew, Andrew, I'd say. Um, He's, I, I'd put his odds roughly at about a third. Um, I think there's kind of a. I think there's a couple of different scenarios where Biden wins, and then there's 
this kind of a, a narrow, a realistic but sort of narrow path for Trump um, to win. I think the main prediction that I will will make is, um, like Scott, I think he'll win Florida, but I also think he'll overperform considerably the, the, the GOP normal performance among Latinos. Um, I think Trump is a sort of recognisable um, macho kind of figure. Um, I think his style of campaigning, I think his message, um, his, ma- his message taps in in a, in, a, in a real way to the, the kind of, uh, the common aspirations of, of, of immigrant minorities, I think, um, you know, because it's all been about, you know, in, in his own way, he's, he's kind of running on a land of opportunity kind of thing. Mm. And, and a lot of, a lot of um, recent immigrants in the United States buy into that very heavily for obvious reasons. And also I think that, I think that Trump's style is kind of a, is a recognisable style. Um, he's cam- he's, some of his ads in Spanish uh, are really good, um, just the way that... He even stands on balconies when he's making his speeches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, he got <laughs> like a Vita. So, uh, yeah. so I think, I think that would be my main prediction is I think he'll do... Um, surpri- I think he'll surprise a few with how well he does among Latinos. Um, I think he'll do even better. The Republicans normally win men by a very large margin, um, particularly white men, but I think Trump will um, overperform with men across the board. Um, regardless of other demographic breakdowns. Um, again, because I think his style has a, a kind of macho appeal. Um, Trump is a, the, maybe the last of the 80s alphas. Um, I think that that still has considerable appeal. Um, will it be enough? Um, I think it'll come down to, um, from what I've read, um, and I always worry about Australians talking about uh, American states like we know them very well, but um, from what I've read, it seems like, you know, they've spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania. That's an obvious um, battleground uh, state. Michigan, um, similar kind of blue-collar demographic that Trump needs. Um, I think it'll come down to, to turnout. Um, the, what I, the most recent things I've read have suggested that turnout might be as high as it was when the results were very bad in 2018 for the Republicans, whereas when Trump won... Trump won Michigan last time with fewer votes than Mitt Romney got when he lost it because Obama, the Obama elections had very high turnout because Democrats were extremely enthused about Obama. Um, and if Democrats are similarly enthused about getting rid of Trump, it won't be about Biden. Um, <laughs> then, and if turnout is that high, then, you know, that's the, the most recent thing I've said is that if turnout's that high in places like Michigan, then that's bad for Trump. I have no real reason to think that that's a conspiracy theory. That sounds quite intuitive. So, yep. <laughs> and uh, so, yep. So I, I was just going to just going to say, and if Renee Gorman, our national manager of the IPA's Generation Liberty Program, was was here, she she's also watching with great intent because uh, in four years, you know, that's millions more young people that have come on. And for those who think um, that uh, all young people are socialists, that's not the case. Um, you know, we're moving out of millennials into, I think it's Gen Z, um, and we might actually, uh, there might be some surprises there for those who just assume that they're all uh, um, kids running around obsessed with Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. They might actually be interested in things like getting jobs and um, making making America and, and, great and they, again. They only need to be so interested or... or so they only need to think about Trump in such a way that the net result for them is a kind of ambivalence and they don't go and vote. Hmm. Like keeping 
those young people not turning out is good for Trump. Yeah, yeah. So when the Democrat door knocker, you know, comes along and says, you know, hey, um, Green New Deal, you know, you must turn out and vote for the Green New Deal. And yeah, this, this 19-year-old is like, what? They, <laughs> Scott, they are definitely not saying that when they door knock. <laughs> 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 They're just showing a picture of Donald Trump and going, yay or nay. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. Okay, well, as I say, we'll be right, back. So, We'll be back in. So let me give my prediction. Let me give my prediction. Oh, yes, of course. uh, So I'm going to say there's a 11% chance. 11, not 10, not 11. You know why? I'm going to say precisely 11. Yes. Because I'm going over, I'm going off the 538 polling averages because I don't think, to, to Andrew's point, that I don't think that we have any better evidence about how, how a campaign is going than we do published polls and it drives me mad that we're all sitting there thinking like no no i think i think they're just more enthusiastic based on yard signs like the the i I understand that polls get it wrong and they always get it wrong to some degree but we don't know which direction they get it wrong and they don't get it wrong the same direction consistently that's it there's a fair bit of game playing that goes on with nate silver he's disgraced no but is it like you know the way that the way they they do the sampling and things i mean you can play all kinds of games with it like that that's true that's true and then then you get a leg up from your mates in the media not talking about the other bloke scandals and things like that and andrew andrew and that's why we now have a raft of Republican-leaning polls that are specifically intended to do precisely that, which is to wait by enthusiasm or all those sorts of things. And we spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. And those are included in those samples. Now, I just don't believe that we have the capacity to make judgment calls past those sorts of things, as flawed as that evidence is. <sighs> and so my call, 11% chance. Well, we shall see. <laughs> Goodness me, if the best you can do is just following whatever bloody Nate Silver says. But anyway. in a principled way, Scott, in a principled <laughs> at le- way. At least quite, quite real clear politics. But anyway, uh, that's all right. Thank you. We shall see. We'll be back here next Thursday to discuss. Uh, we have come to that segment of the show where we talk about what we've been reading, watching and listening to. And we have uh, some rippers today. Um, Chris, would you like to lead us off? Sure. So I feel a little bit bad about this one because I haven't finished watching it. In fact, I've only seen the first episode. But the show is called uh, La Revolution. La Revolution. Um, uh, if you don't agree with my French uh, um, French language pronunciations, um, it's a show obviously set during the French Revolution. That is a horror um, uh, that um, uh, on the the French Revolution background. There are peasants and there are um, aristocrats and so forth. Um, uh, it, it's an enjoyable show. I mean, as I say, I've seen only the first episode. I'm glad Andrew is on the show to talk about it, though, because you are going to hate the theme of this show with a undying passion. When I first heard about there's going to be a horror set during the French Revolution, I was like, wow, that does make sense. There's some really horrifying things that happened during the French Revolution and Vendy massacres and um, um, mobs roaming the streets. Well, guess who the monsters are in this? Well, it'd be the, the aristocrats. Clearly the aristocrats, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the aristocrats, in <laughs> fact, are murdering the peasants. Um, yeah. And that's what sets off the French Revolution. Um, I don't know whether it goes to uh, the horror that, that um, was at the back end of the French Revolution or not. Um, uh, but it's a, look, it's a very well done, well done show. Um, uh, it's enjoyable, such as these things are. 
Um, but it is, it's a French drama that haven't, tries to reverse haven't, engineer. Haven't the they horror. read Simon Sharma's book on the revolution? Uh, it was the aristocracy well, who was behind it, which was behind it. It's, it's a, it is a um, French revolution drama that tries to reverse engineer the horror of the French revolution in order to be a justification for the French revolution. Sort of, um, which, sort of let them eat brains. And if I had thought of that, I would have. Oh, man. Yeah, I wish I'd said that, Oscar. I wish I'd said that. Um, that's a very good line. Um, I, I might go next because I just wanted to, first of all, say thank you, Chris. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned uh, For All Mankind. The alternate, oh, yeah, yeah. The awesome. al yeah. On Apple TV, the alternate history of what would happen if the Russians got to the moon first um, and prompted America to just sink unbelievable resources into um, uh, recovering their lost prestige by establishing moon bases and stuff. I've now watched nine episodes and it is just absolutely gripping uh, and last night's was uh, a jaw-dropping finale. Um I need to see what happens at that cliffhanger. So thank you for that one. Definitely recommend that one to viewers. Um, but what I was going to talk about today um, is uh, the opposite. It's a disappointing effort, which is, I think it's on Stan, it's the Brave New World uh, series, um, a much-beloved book. And uh, I approached it thinking uh, two things, one of which is anything that's vaguely sci-fi, I'll watch. Um, you know, if not for the production values and the imagined worlds that are created. And the second, of course, is um, uh, in this age of COVID, uh, Huxley's dystopia looks uh, in many ways more relevant than Orwell's dystopia, that it's actually not um, a socialist industrial state. It's actually a, a highly scientific therapeutic state. This is the epitome of health fascism. So I went into it with some interest and was just appalled by the first episode because uh, in the book, I don't think it's given too much away to say that they paint this picture of the world in which genetic engineering, and it's, it's written in the 30s, as you, um, astounding, the genetic engineering has enabled them to actually build the society according to a pattern which enables stability and order, everyone in their place, um, and the reward that uh, the individuals get is pleasure. Uh, it's a purely hedonic society, uh, free love, uh, drugs, whatever it takes. And there's just a couple of individuals and there's a disruption to this established order um, through someone who comes in from outside, which uh, triggers some disaffection amongst uh, a couple of the people in this system and, and leads to a hilarity in shoes. No, um, disorder in shoes. <laughs> they, in the f opening frame... We established that our central character, Lenina, um, is disaffected. In the second scene, she meets the other guy, Bernard Marx, who is disaffected. So before there's been any world building, apart from a little panorama shot, they got an architect to do New London, it's like you just saying to the viewer, don't believe this. Don't, don't believe this uh, beautiful picture of this society. We're going to introduce you to the guys who, who are already undermining it. And, and then they have this scene that they were raving about, uh, the so-called, the orgy scene. Um, you know, the, the, the producer was more proud of the resources that they put into this, this scene um, than he was of the story. But it comes after <laughs> all this. So if, there, if he had flipped it around, it could have just been like, 
look at everyone having fun. Someone, Isn't everyone happy? Yeah. And then undermined it. And, and Someone just wanted to be a pornographer. That was just their dream. Yeah. Life. There's no longer any dramatic justification for it <laughs> because they then zoom in on our character's face yeah, and you realise that she's just going along with it because she feels like she has to, as opposed to making the, the viewer complicit in the idea of wouldn't it be fun to live in a place like that and then undermining it. No, no, it's just I'm just appalled and disgusted by what they've done. And I've, I've, I've forced myself to watch three episodes and I'm just angry. Yeah, I haven't gotten around to it because uh, it, I, I felt like it was not going to do the book Justice. You'd be absolutely right. So <laughs> I, I was flicking through the book this morning on the uh, on the tram on the way in, uh, as my glasses fogged up because of the mask. And you know, the, 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 you get to like the back half of the book before Lenina really becomes disaffected. Bernard's always an odd duck, but you know, the Savage doesn't appear until halfway through the book. All of this is done right up front. Um, you know, transfers to America so they can introduce an American character for American audiences. There's, there's like a gunfight. In episode two. Oh, good. It's like, and the whole episode is just gunfight and chase, you know, with pickup trucks and, oh, God almighty. I hate it so much. So I don't recommend this one. Oh, so you're going to keep hate watching it? Probably. <laughs> the, the special effects aren't bad. Andrew, what have you got? Uh, I would be remiss not to mention uh, the AFL grand final that took place on the weekend. Um, not just because my team, Richmond, won again uh, three in four years. Uh, thank you. You've been watching. Uh, looking forward. <laughs> we'll but, uh, um, and, of course, all Richmond fans everywhere, particularly uh, over a certain age, um, we need to revel in this. I mean, it was a... I waited, I waited most of my – Richmond played in the finals twice um, when I was a kid or up until I became an adult and then throughout most of my adult life um, went back to being absolutely terrible. And it's just the turnaround in the club. This has been incredible um, and a lot of people uh, – Richmond's a big deal here in Melbourne um, and there's a lot of people that this means a lot to to see the club turn, or, turn it around over the last 10, ten years. Um, so – on that, um, you know, extremely exciting as a as a TV watching spectacle. Um, it was a bit bizarre, of course, because it was up in Brisbane. Um, we mentioned earlier that Queensland, um, the the people of Queensland have have done a tremendous thing for Victorians. Um, yep. We should never forget it. They, Thank they you, everybody. Yep. Stepped in to, to help. We're, we're not allowed. Out. We're not allowed in. But we're no, not allowed in. But no, they. But they. they <laughs> no, no, yeah. Someone. Oh, some, and credit to the Gabba. I mean, look, the drainage on that surface yeah. is just Well, exactly. There's a downpour for hours, uh, as you would expect in Queensland, perhaps. And, um, yeah, the Gabba drained very well and it was a very good, um, very good match, or at least for, you know, for the neutral, it would have been a good match to watch for three quarters. For Richmond fans, it was a good match to watch for four. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a strange experience watching it at home. It's the first time the, the grand final's been interstate. Um, and I sort of, because of the restrictions at the time, you know, we still couldn't have, um, you know, friends over and things like that. So this is the first grand final I can remember watching. I sat watching it with my, my young son, who's um, 15 months old, so obviously doesn't care. And so in the background, I had the sound of the cartoons that I'd put on my laptop. It's like, <laughs> you, go, you know, you go there and just pay attention to your cartoons for a little bit while I watch the footy. Uh, great bit of, great bit of parenting. Um, 
but um, yeah, so it was a bit of so, a strange, yeah. strange experience. But um, so, well so we watched it too, and and it won't surprise viewers that I'm not really that into football, but my my family is, and um, uh, and my my children and wife go for Richmond, um, so they're in that weird situation too that they've known nothing but victories for Richmond, which is weird for all um, uh, historical Richmond supporters. I think the, the the night grand final is a terrible, terrible yeah, decision. It's, it's horrible. The, my seven-year-old and, um, sorry, my nine-year-old and my um, six-year-old were unable to stay up for it, which is just the last thing that you want if you're trying to build a young fan base. Um, and to the lockdown point, I was just watching it furious when I could see people not wearing masks, furious when I saw people touching each other like like animals they were touching each other and holding hands and things um and then these ads like visit South Australia I, I of course I'd love to yeah, that, <laughs> that looks great yeah <laughs> anytime no that's right about that night the night grand final those my my brother's kids um are about the same age and they just didn't make it really you know they just conk out and yeah. um it's and, an it's another example, and and, kind and of for a, the grown-ups, you can't go out and get hammered afterwards. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you can't. <laughs> it's like another example, though, of the way it's sort of uh, kind of a short-term thinking that's crept into, in particular the AFL, but I think our sporting bodies generally, um, they've sort of, you know, cricket kind of has done this as well with the the rights, the TV rights that they sold. Um, you know, that they 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 take a short-term hit because it looks good for the people who are sort of in the executive positions right now, um, and not really. Um, looking at the longer term well-being of the the game, um, and it's kind of up to the it's kind of up to the players and the participants at the local level to try and refocus them on that. Um, so hopefully there is a bit of a backlash against this night grand final mm. thing because you know it's it's ridiculous. Yes, yes, it is. And um, uh, and a shout out to Zach Gorman, who I hope is listening. But um, I, I gather the NRL grand final was not quite such a success in terms of a spectacle. Um, I think Melbourne won it, didn't they? So well, that's got that's got to hurt. That's got to sting. Just uh, a little bit. Yeah, but also the actual uh, the refereeing, I believe, was um, uh, an issue again uh, in the NRL. But uh, an astonish- actually, in fairness, an astonishing effort by NRL and AFL. I've written I've written about this uh, during the year um, on what they needed to do to survive in uh, during COVID. Uh, the NRL uh, used very pointy elbows to get its way. The AFL does what the AFL does which is uh, much more uh, softly, softly and touchy-feely, but they got there in the end too. And just to have those grand finals, and we had a netball grand final, it's actually has actually been a ray of sunlight during an otherwise sort of bleak couple of months. Absolutely. So good on them. Um, thank you to our listeners. You've been listening to Looking Forward. A uh, big thank you also to our uh, my fellow panellists today, Chris Berg. Thanks, and Andrew Bushnell. Cheers. Uh, this is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. Please do go to ipa.org.au, join or donate, get around our stuff. If you haven't already read Climate Change, The Facts, you'll find out how to purchase a copy of that there. We'll have links to all of the articles that we've referred to uh, in our show notes, uh, or you can just go to our website and, and find that work by Daniel Wilde and Marcus Smith and, and others there. Uh, we'll be back with more Looking Forward next week for our US election special. 